All right, good morning, and we'll continue today in this high-speed flyover, this recap, uh, putting back together the book of Romans, and today in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 21, two calls, but before we begin, we'll continue, has been our habit with this recap, and will continue to be all the way through to the end of the book to review what Paul has told the church in Rome Thus far, Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Instead, he is eagerly obliged to it. A gospel that is the very power of God unto salvation. The wrath of God revealed against men and the righteousness of God revealed in making propitiation for them. Ransoming back, buying back his people to himself, purchasing our lives with the very lifeblood of Christ, in order that the one who is eternally just may also be justifier. For Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as something more than belief. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as the very righteousness of God. The power of God on display, faith credited as righteousness, and having been so justified through faith, we rejoice, we literally boast in the hope that God has promised to us, for we were dead, born in the image of Adam, coming from dust and going to dust, and in Christ we live, because in Christ we died. We know our identity. That Christians are those who by the baptism of the Holy Spirit have died with Christ, are buried with Christ, and will be risen with Christ by the glory of the Father to walk in new life. A profound identity it is. Life from death, God calling into existence that which did not exist all by the power of the Holy Spirit. For men are enslaved But they're not enslaved from outside themselves. The scary part about the enslavement of the natural man is he's enslaved from within himself. He's enslaved by his own being. For Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 8 and verse 8 and says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But Christians have a new being in a new identity, the new creation. We're in the very next breath after speaking this travesty about the natural man. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And therefore, we can hold on with great certainty to what would otherwise be the most outrageous statement in all of Scripture, where in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we find out that all things work for good. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so the question today for every single one of us is, are you called by God? Do you love God? Pastor, how do I know if I'm called by God? Friends, if you love God, not the the things that he might give you, but if you love him, then you are called by him. If you are called by God, if you love God, friends, I can tell you right now, you may have had some really, really hard days. You've never had a bad day in the entirety of your existence. We are not called to be trophies on a shelf. Paul says we are called according to the purpose of God, for salvation belongs to the Lord. In Romans chapter 9, verse 16, he says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What does salvation depend? Not on human will, not on human exertion. It depends on God because our God is free. He has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And men will ask, 
Out of the depth of their depravity, is there then injustice on God's part? And Paul responds, not with by no means, but not being. It's a fallacious question. For all his ways are justice. God's ways are not defined by the rule of justice. God's ways define what justice is. And so here is the good news. Mercy and compassion are not opposed to justice. Mercy and compassion are not the opposite of justice. Mercy and compassion are part and partial to God's justice to the extent is if there is no mercy and compassion, then it's not justice. We see an example of Pharaoh. God hardened Pharaoh, and in doing so, he exposed the lawless heart of the natural man that was already in rebellion. In doing so, he both destroyed a man and a nation of lawlessness and showed compassion and mercy to billions upon billions that are still receiving it to this very day. To me and to you, our God will not be accused The creator will not be accused by the creature. Instead, he will be glorified. He'll be glorified for his justice in wrath, and he will be glorified for his justice in mercy. Concerning the glory of God and salvation, Paul's heart absolutely, positively breaks for the lost. To the point that he says... I wish it was me instead of them. If somehow, which it's not possible, and he confesses that, but if somehow in God's mercy it could be me that was damned and my brothers would be saved, I would do it. His heart breaks for the lost. Those who, lacking the intimacy of salvation, established a system to replace real intimacy and called it law. Yet God's glory is not in man's law, no matter how complicated or well it is executed. God's glory comes in the word of faith. A word that is near you. Not the word of faith movement. Please don't misunderstand. The word of faith that scripture speaks of. A word that is in your heart. And therefore in your mouth, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And you ask yourself, what must you believe then? What must you confess? That Jesus is God? Not at all. No, even the demons will confess that. That Jesus is Lord. Might. Power. That Jesus is Master. That Jesus is Sovereign. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So that a little girl who by the sovereign command of God was named at her birth, no mercy. Might be on the day of judgment, stood before her creator and her redeemer and be called mercy. Such is the grace of the salvation of Jesus Christ for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today, the impracticum of proclaiming such a gospel. Because friends, it is not practical. It is as impractical as it can possibly be Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 21. 
Well, for context, back to 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask you, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who do not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Before we get started in earnest today, I want to take just a minute to make a note on the nature of practical application. And I just want to just put it out there right at the beginning. Practical application is nearly impossible in the subject of evangelism. Let me say that one more time. Practical application is nearly impossible, at least the way we understand it, is nearly impossible in the subject of evangelism. And that might be shocking to some people, and I wouldn't be surprised if you were shocked, because when you look at most modern techniques, and well, that's even in the way you say it, it, it kind of betrays it. When you look at most modern techniques, when you look at most modern courses, modern primers, modern views of evangelism, it's always that. It's almost always a technique. It's almost always a system. It's if A, then B, and then if B, then C, and C, then D, but if not D, back to B, and then to E. And yet, apart from a couple of people evangelizing others that are at the scene and in real time giving advice... Practical application, apart from the moment in evangelism, is really only theoretical practical application. It's the, if it goes this way, then do X. And if it goes that way, do Y. And while I will confess to you that there are many constants, God is immutable, the gospel doesn't change. The nature of man is universal in his depravity, the manner of no two salvations are exactly alike in the means by which they come. I would have you note that Paul takes all the way to the end of the 10th chapter. Because, man, the church is hung up on pragmatism today. We, you know, practical, practical, practical. And yet, here is Paul writing to the Romans, going, listen, man, I really wanted to come and impart to you a blessing from the Lord because, like, you're one of the biggest churches, you know, going, here you are at the capital of the empire, and the Lord has prevented me from coming to you, and so instead I'm writing you this letter. And it's a letter that seems somewhat foreign to kind of the, the 20th and 21st century mantra of the way that you approach church because so far we're well over halfway through this book, and Paul hasn't said one practical thing yet. All it is is doctrine. And here, finally, at the end of the 10th chapter, we get to practical application. And even then, it's abbreviated to the point of near absurdity, considering that he is the man who literally blazed the trail on missions. If anybody was going to write the book for a practicum on how to do missions, Paul's the guy to do it. I mean, we all know it was the Holy Spirit, but if you're going to put the human stamp on it, I mean, he is the inventor of the mission trip. And when he finally gives you a little practical about missions, you get eight verses. He does not give us the minutiae thereof, but instead a screaming overview. Why? Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 19, 
Jesus does the exact same thing. Right before his ascension, he says, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. This is the Great Commission. Here's what you're to do. Behold, all authority has been given unto me, Christ says. Not to you, but to Christ. Not to me, but to Christ. Not to the preacher, but to Christ. Not to the Southern Baptist, but to Christ. All authority has been given to Christ. Therefore, you go and make disciples. And there's an implication here that the authority that I have is somehow going to go along with you. And then what is implied at the beginning is made explicit at the end when he says, behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. And so the question then becomes, well, how, Lord? I mean, here you have this charge, go make disciples. How? What is that supposed to look like? Well, if you're going to make disciples... And you're commanded by Christ to make disciples. I would probably start with the manner in which Christ made disciples. And guys, i got to tell you, when you look at the way that Christ makes disciples, in the means, in the practicum, in the stuff that he was doing, man, he is all over the map. One day he's feeding them by the tens of thousands. The next day... He says, the only reason you show up is for the food. I'm not giving you one single scrap. He preaches to them by tens of thousands all day long just to turn around the next and to flee into the wilderness with 12. One day, he's making spit mud to grind into the eyes of a blind man, as counterintuitive as it can be. And the next day, simply looks at a man and says, your faith has made you whole. Jesus is all over the place. Practical application from the preacher will not help. If you wish to be the means that Christ uses to bring people to himself, you don't need practical application. What you need is miracle. You need the miracle of Jesus Christ in the midst of a morbid world. Because if we're going to borrow a phrase that goes back to the divines of old, if we're going to talk about the theater of salvation, the theater of salvation is full of morbidity, means, and miracles. The morbidity of men, that men are dead in their sins. The means that God ordains by which salvation would come and the miracle that is new birth and the salvation of the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. It's not eight steps. It's not evangelism explosion even though the doctrine in that one is actually pretty good. Don't necessarily have anything against it. It just won't save you and it won't make you a great evangelist, man. Let me tell you what allows you to lead people to Christ is in the midst of their morbidity, God ordains a means by which miracle comes. And the means, and this is so incredibly important, and it grinds 180 degrees against the flow of thought in the modern church. The means, by necessity, because here's what we do today, before I tell you. What we do today is basically we take modern psychology and demographics, we figure out all the things in conversation that make people comfortable and uncomfortable. We take the same kind of stuff that they apply in so many sales seminars for winning friends and influencing people. We church it up with a little bit of church language and we try to approach people, quote unquote, where they're at. Here's what scripture consistently shows from, and that all seems to make good sense, practical. 
Here's what Scripture consistently teaches. That the means that God ordains is always logically divorced from the outcome. Every single time. So you're going to grab on to something here about means. The means that God ordains is always logically divorced from the outcome that God intends in order that what comes may be clearly seen as being a miracle. So here's how it works. Let's look at a couple examples. The parting of the Red Sea. One of the great miracles in the Old Testament. Charlton Heston, Sight and Sound Theater. You know, you go see Moses. It's the part you're waiting for. I mean, at some point in time, you know they're going to part the Red Sea. It's going to be incredible. Right? This is what you want to see. One of the great miracles of the Old Testament. How does he part the Red Sea? He holds out a stick. God says, hold your staff out over the sea and it will part. Now, you would have thought that God would use some kind of means that was at least associated with the logical outcome. Why didn't he tell Moses to go up and blow on it? I'll huff and puff and blow your water back. No, he picks something that is completely, utterly divorced from the miracle that is coming. Because if Moses had walked up there and blown on the water and the water had parted, it wouldn't have been long in the depraved nature of man and in the lies of lawlessness that the rumor would have been spreading that this Moses guy has got breath that will part the sea. Instead, he picks a means that's completely logically divorced from the outcome so that the miracle can be seen. We already mentioned Jesus with the mud in the blind man's eye. Friends, I don't know how you heal a blind man from being blind, but I can tell you what you don't do is you don't take spit that contrary to popular belief is far, far from sterile and spit into the mud on the ground in the road of first century Judea. You know what kind of stuff's in that road? The same kind of stuff that's in Jim's barn lot. The way you fix his eyes is you don't spit into that gritty crud and grind it into his eyes. And yet, this is what Christ does. The means are logically divorced from the outcome. Same deal with faith. Abraham believed God. It was credit to him as righteousness. You're saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no man may boast. What in the world does faith have to do with righteousness? People believe in all sorts of things. It doesn't make them righteous. And yet here we are. Your faith has made you whole. Because God chooses a means that is so apart from the outcome. Specifically to point that the miracle is his and not the doing of the means. Those that come bearing such a message are said to have beautiful feet. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, friends, the word for beautiful here in the Greek does not mean aesthetically pleasing. I guarantee you, if you got a load of my feet you would not find them to be aesthetically pleasing. I don't know many preachers. Uh, well, I haven't. I haven't taken a tally, but the preachers I know, I'm guessing from everything else you see about them, they don't have pretty feet. We're not talking about aesthetically pleasing feet here. The word in the Greek means to be timely. It's beautiful because it comes at the right time. They come preaching, they come proclaiming at the time that God ordained for the miracle, at the moment when new life was to be, God provided in his providence the timing for the means to come. And they came because they were sent. This chain of means that is divorced from the miracle. Paul says, how will they call 
when they have not believed. It's not just a question of means, it's a question of means in the light of morbidity. Paul asks, he says, how can you call on a God that you don't believe in if you have to cry out in faith? And we know what this calling out entails. It entails repentance, confession, not that Christ is God, but that he is your Lord when in the, you are in the midst of your rebellion, completely apart from wanting to have anything to do with him being Lord. It requires new creation and new birth, and you're not a creator, and you're not a birther. So, so how can you do this? How can you call when you don't believe? And the calling out is a call that comes from a heart of belief. For with the heart one believes and is justified. So how do you do that? How do you call out of belief when you don't believe? Here's the reality of the morbidity of man. They have a heart problem. The answer is the only way they can call when they don't believe is if God gives them a new heart so they do believe. And you say, well, how do you get it? It's by miracle. It's not by means. Friends, I can preach here today until I go down and I cannot put a new heart in you. It must be by miracle. How will they believe when they have not heard? Man, what in the world does hearing have to do with believing? Because of decades, maybe centuries of poor preaching on this subject, we equate the two together. What does hearing have to do with believing? Man, 90% of the stuff I hear in a day, I don't believe. Turn on the TV, get on the internet, click on the radio. Man, if you believe what you're hearing, sorry, bad deal for you. Man, hearing and believing are not necessarily tied together. You say, well, people have to have information. They at least have to know it's out there so whether they can consider whether they can believe or not. The thing is, as Paul told us in Romans chapter 1, they already have information. Man, in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. They have information. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Man, they knew God because God showed himself to them in the creation. It was not sufficient for their salvation. Man, why, why do they need to come preaching? Why do they need to hear? Well, so they can have the information to make a decision. Man, they had the information. And all they used the information for was to construct a better idol. How will they hear without someone preaching? Now, there it is, see. You've got to have good information, not misinformation. That's the key. Man, you know what Scripture says about preaching? You know what Paul, the same guy that's writing this, says about preaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, the very people that need to hear it think it is absolutely foolishness. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To win friends and influence people? No. 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Friends, it is foolishness indeed to think that any man can stand in a pulpit and say impassioned words to you. Even words that are well studied and well exegeted. It is foolishness, Paul says, to think that a man can stand and speak words to you and that speaking will somehow override the information that God already gave about himself in the creation all around us and somehow when you just wouldn't accept it from God, I guess you'll accept it from me. The idea that I can stand up here, that any preacher can stand, like we're speaking some incantation and you're going to magically have a new heart, is absurd. It's an absurd thing. As though I can speak life into you. As though you could speak it into yourself. The foolishness of preaching. And have you note that in the wisdom of God, God's wisdom, Paul says, is that the world did not know him through wisdom. God said, here's what's wise for me to do. To not allow their intellect to be the manner in which they know me. And so he chose the folly of preaching, which is the power and the wisdom of God, because at the end of the day, this knowing is a gnosko knowing. The knowing that we must have to be saved has to go beyond that of the knowledge of the mind and be the intimate knowledge of the heart. Why did God choose the folly of preaching? Because it is necessary for the means to be logically divorced, to be divorced from wisdom, from the outcome, in order that it may be clearly seen that the outcome is the very miracle of God itself. Which is why Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing not through the word of the whole practical breakdown that he's given. How, how, how will they believe unless, unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone is sent preaching? No, he, he, he just cuts it off. Faith comes from hearing and hearing not from the word of the preacher. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. The means logically divorced from the outcome. Oh, I'll come preaching. Every now and then someone gets saved. It's not because of my preaching. It's because the word of Christ. Man, we are just the proclaimers. The word for preaching here is kereiso. It simply means to announce, to herald, to publish. It's the word that Matthew uses in Matthew, or that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 10, verse 27, when he says, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. If the preaching that is the means of the coming of salvation is going to be effectual, then the preaching better be more than the words of a man. How are they to preach? How are they to preach this thing that must be more than the words of the man unless they are sent? The Greek here is a passive verb, which means contrary to popular belief, we do not send. The church doesn't send. I'm not sending you out. The pastor doesn't send. I'm not sending you out today in order to go proclaim the gospel. The mission board doesn't send. God sends. God and God alone. The nature of their sending is they are sent out. And interestingly enough, it's a compound word in the original Greek, and it means out from 
and avoidance. Unless they are sent. They're sent preaching and they're going out to proclaim and the manner in which they are going out, the manner in which God is sending them is literally out from avoidance, to move away from avoiding something. And so we've got this idea of that, that what missions is supposed to look like is okay. Here we are in kind of our, our, our safe little bubble that we call, you know, Southern Christianity or American Christianity. Here we are in our relatively safe little bubble, and there are places out there that are dark and dangerous, and we are going to kind of, you know, muster up the grit and, and get together our courage and get prayed up and, and, and get all the, our, our prayer support behind us, and, and we're going to kind of charge out, you know, in once more into the breach. The picture that's painted here is very different. Ascending is passive to, to move away from avoidance of something. The picture is not of us kind of, you know, down set hut and, and everybody go for the goal line. It's instead is there's this thing out there that we've probably been avoiding that was already there. And we, if anything, have kept ourselves away from it. And we're moving away from that avoidance and into the thing that God would have us do. It's a picture, it's, it's, the, it's the picture of potential energy of water becoming kinetic energy of water when the dam breaks. That there is something standing in the way that is impeding the water, and if it was allowed to do what it could do by its nature, it would flow downhill, and then the avoidance is removed, and when it's removed, the water is sent. We have to correct our thinking. We think of sending out ministry missionaries. We think about ourselves going out in evangelism as an active measure. Scripture sees missions as the natural outcome of the removal of our own avoidances. In other words, get out of your own way. So let's remove some avoidance here at the end today. Because I think what Paul is saying here, if we understand it, produces a very bold gospel that is founded not in the psychology of the day or the sales techniques of the day or in the ability of the individual that is going out to be able to present it in a palatable way. As a matter of fact, what we've just seen here said, really, the more palatable you're able to present it and the better of a salesperson you are, the less likely you are to be the means of God. Because the better you are at that kind of stuff, the more the means seems to line up logically with the desired outcome. Man, one thing we see consistently in him is the means is always opposed to the logic of the outcome. Because he's not going to give the glory to the means, friends. He's going to take it for himself. We all want a bold gospel. Amen? Bold gospel. And yet, I don't know about you, I'm guessing probably you, because I've never met anyone that gives an answer other than this. Man, if, if I'm going to look at myself in the proverbial mirror, man, there's been lots of times when I punted when what I should have done was not avoided. How about you? What prevents a bold gospel? If we're going to be honest with ourselves, when we talk to most people, it's fear of failure. It's a fear of failure. I mean, if, for instance, you know, how do you feel about evangelizing at work or in the Walmart parking lot or whatever? When, when you know, Freeman likes to go do the street corner preaching stuff. Does it make any of you nervous that one time he might invite you to go with him? <laughs> huh? On the other hand, if you had an absolute 100%, no doubt, straight from the throne of heaven, guarantee that if you drive your pickup truck down there to Walmart, drop down the tailgate, jump up on it, and start crowing about the gospel that 300 people are going to be saved, would you not go as quick as you can get there? 
I mean, before the sermon's over, would you not just get up and leave and drive down there? If like, Lord, if you're going to guarantee me 300, man, I want to see it, right? You go down there, you hop up on the pickup truck, you open up Acts chapter 2 and just read the thing. The fact of the matter is, it is fear of failure. And fear is not becoming of Christians. It's forbidden to have fear in anything but the Lord himself, but there's two basic varieties. One is worse than the other. The more noble is the first one, even though it is not noble and completely misplaced. The first one is fear of failure on behalf of the one being evangelized. In other words, I'm scared I won't do it well enough and I'll confuse them. I won't be able to answer their questions and the gospel will look weak or I'll put someone off in my presentation. Hey, listen, friends, there's some of us that can't hardly say thank you without putting somebody off. Here's the reality. You need to get this in your head. Because if you really understand it, it will stomp this fear to death. You will never, ever, ever convince someone, no matter how slick your presentation is, you will never convince a human being of your own accord to come and die that they may live. You will never do it. You will never convince someone to actually pick up their cross. You will never, you will never convince someone to, to lose their life that they may gain it. It will not happen. It seems like a good logical argument. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Seems like a great argument. It's a terrible argument. All you have to do is look at the Garden of Eden. Adam walked every day with God himself in the cool of the evening. The God that formed him, Jesus Christ, with his own hands out of the dirt of the ground, the Holy Spirit that blew the breath of life into him. He walked with him every single day, and this God said, there's one thing you don't do. You can do whatever you want. You do that, I'm going to kill you. And when it came right down to it, he looked at the fruit that he desired, and he said, I desire what I desire more than I want to live. You'll never convince them. And what does it say in chapter 5? These are the generations of Adam. He bore children in his own image. You will never convince a man that life is sweeter than his rebellion. It's not going to happen. If walking with God in the cool of the day, every single day, wasn't enough to convince Adam... It won't be enough to convince Bob. The second fear that holds people back is even less noble. The fear of failure will extract a price on your ego. <laughs> Rejection makes me feel bad. Brings me down. Hey, buddy, nobody likes to be rejected. Never met a person that, that digs it. Nobody likes to be rejected. Okay? I'm with you. I feel you. I don't like being rejected. Not a bit. I don't like being rejected on trivial things. I certainly don't like being rejected on important things. Especially when it's people you care about. But I want to tell you, if that's what's holding you up, shame on you. If it's what, and when it has held me up, shame on me. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Friends, we've never been rejected the way he is. Most they can do here in the good old U.S. of A. at this point is just hurt your feelings. Oh yeah, you could, you could lose a job over it. We've come to that point. Man, luckily, it's a job-finding market right now. Would we not all go stand on the tailgate of that pickup if we knew for a fact that there would be a crowd of people being saved in front of it? What would you tell the cops when they show up and tell you you're trespassing? Tough, dude. Do you see what's happening? What holds us back? The fact that we know that not all will come. Verse 16. 
they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they, have not, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. And I've shown myself to those who did not ask me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary People, we know all will not come. Why? Because they haven't heard. Oh no, they heard. They heard. Why? Because the, 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 the guys that were the means went out and didn't do a good enough job explaining so they didn't understand? Nope, they understand. They heard. They understand. Their response is rejection. Why? Because they're dead. That's why. They're disobedient and contrary, they are hopeless of their own accord. He says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It doesn't depend on their will or their exertion. It doesn't depend on the means, the preacher's will or the preacher's exertion. I will never forget. We had a day, this was early on, had like three or four people saved one morning. I was preaching this sermon that was a bridge sermon. It's one of those sermons where you have two grand theological points in the text and then there's this connecting idea that is necessary to connect the two, but it's some kind of dry tough intellectual stuff, right? And it's like we're going to have this powerful sermon on the first Sunday, and we're going to have this powerful sermon on the third Sunday, and on the second Sunday, we just kind of got to do the work to get to week three. I'm going through the notes. The Spirit moved across this place like a wave. Didn't make any sense, had nothing to do with what the text was. The means are not pragmatic. They're always logically divorced from the outcome so that it may be clearly seen that faith comes through hearing and hearing does not come through the word of the preacher or the evangelist, that hearing comes through the word of Christ and Christ alone. Guys, There is a, one of the things that, one of the things that I hear consistently out of convenient Christianity, that is the kind of Christianity, <clears throat> or at least it calls itself Christianity, that all, that is all too common in our day and age, and basically takes positions on any particular doctrinal point as they are the easiest and most palatable for people to swallow. When you do that, you always end up in self-contradiction at some point. This is one of those points. There is a great lie that comes with an Armenian human-centric gospel that if it's implanted in the heart and mind of somebody will end in an eventuality that ends up in the best case of causing evangelism to be incredibly confused, if not dissuading people from evangelizing altogether. And it works like this. If you replace, because all we see Paul doing here is developing the idea that was laid down in chapter 9, verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So God has a means, and man, how can they believe unless they hear, and how can they hear unless someone is preaching, and how can they preach unless they're sent? But at the end of the day, it's not about the means. It's about faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of Christ. Here's the miracle that ends the morbidity. 
And we can all say thank you to the preacher for bringing the news, but we praise God for bringing the salvation. Okay, if you edit chapter 9, verse 16, so that instead of saying, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And if you edit that to say, I will have mercy on whomever will choose my mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will, whoever will decide for my compassion, so then it depends not on one or the other, but on humans who will elect the mercy that God offers. So that was 15 and 16. So for clarity's sake, let's go back. Verse 15. The word of God says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The doctrine of convenience that is often taught today would say this. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, or sorry, I will have mercy on whomever will choose my mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever will decide for my compassion. So then it depends not on one or the other, but upon humans who will elect the mercy that God offers them. That is blasphemy. And any time, it's, it's not only heresy, it is heresy and it is blasphemy. Heresy is error, blasphemy impugns the character of God, this does both. And if you start with that error, you find yourself in a hellish place when it comes to evangelism. Because within the bounds of what men experience as their own sovereign choice, what style I'll cut my hair, for example, even though it was so grating against my mama's will. Within the bounds of what men experience as their own sovereign choice, within those bounds, Men are absolutely, positively able to be persuaded. Mark makes his living on it. This is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing when salesmen are persuading people to buy a quality product. It's not a bad thing when doctors are persuading people to, yeah, you need to get that broken leg set, buddy. Right? I know it's going to hurt. I know you don't want to, but let, let me tell you, there's some bad stuff coming if you don't get it done. You know, worst case scenario, we may be sawing her off. Best case scenario, you're going to be crippled for the rest of your life. I know you don't want to have to bite the stick and get the jerk. I've been there. It's tough, but, you know, you need to do it. Within, within what men experience as their own sovereign will, they can be persuaded. No doubt about it have you ever been persuaded if you've ever had buyer's remorse you most definitely have and so here's what scripture says Matthew chapter 19 honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself love your neighbor as yourself I don't know about you, but that's a tall order for me because I love me some me. Even when I hate myself, I still love myself. I love me some me. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this, As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah for, than for that town. Okay. Go into a town. Go into a house. Bring your message. Let your peace be on them. The peace that is Jesus Christ. Men, bring the gospel. Be sent. 
so that you can preach. Be unhindered. Don't, don't avoid them, man. Get, get out there. Be in the middle of it. Be unhindered. Remove avoidance. Let the water run downhill. Preach. Proclaim. And if they don't listen to you, if they reject your message, then knock the dust off your feet and move on to the next one. Friends, if you hold to a 99%, 1% understanding of the gospel where God does 99% of the work and man has to do his 1%, if you hold to that idea of I'll be compassionate to whoever will receive my compassion and I will be merciful for whoever will decide for my mercy, you can't knock the dust off your feet, not if you love them like you love yourself. I guarantee you, if that was true and it was me on the other side of the door that I was knocking with the Bible in my hand there to give him the gospel and the me on the other side of the door said, go take a hike, buddy. If that really was me on the other side in some weird kind of timey-wimey sort of thing and I'm knocking on my own door and I've got the gospel and I'm on the other side going take a hike, friend, I will put a tent on the front porch of my house. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving until I'm persuaded. I don't care if it takes my whole life. For what is it for a man to lose what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose? Friends, if the Arminian view of evangelism is correct, it should break down the moment you find someone that will not accept the gospel because you know as well as I do, if it was you that wasn't accepting, knowing what you know on this side of glory, you would beg for them to stay if it took their whole life. And Satan could lock up the kingdom of God in a moment. As soon as we found somebody that in their rebellion said no. But such is not the case. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Salvation is a miracle. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. In the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 2, in chapter verses 14 through 17, Paul tells us what this kind of evangelism looks like. In chapter 2, verse 14, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal Procession, man, we were enslaved to sin and now we're enslaved to Christ. And here is Christ our Lord, our Master, leading us in His conquest. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, okay, here you are as means, means that are divorced from the outcome, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ, Paul is speaking to the doctrine of evangelism and he says it is the opposite of 90% of what you see written on the topic of evangelism today. We are not peddling God's word. That's not what we're here to do. Now look, peddling stuff's fine, man. Pedal watches, pedal widgets, pedal M&Ms, it doesn't matter. All that's good stuff, man. Go be a merchant. We don't peddle the gospel. We are the aroma of Christ everywhere. Man, we're the, you know, 
Take the lid off the jar, man. Get you a sniff. What is it? I don't know. You may love it. You may hate it. It's not up to me. What the gospel smells like to you is not up to me. It's up to God. It's not up to you. It's not, it's not up to men and, 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 and their efforts. It's up to God. You ever love the smell of something that somebody else hates? <laughs> I love the smell of fresh cut grass. Who doesn't? My Uncle Dan doesn't. You cut the grass and Dan Sinus is going, right? He doesn't like the smell of fresh cut grass. I love it. Why? God. God made him that way. He made me this way. I like it. I like the smell of ozone a little bit as long as it's not too strong. Find somebody has been struck by lightning, they won't like it. What's the difference? Man, we're the aroma of Christ everywhere. Christ doesn't change. God's immutable. The gospel's the gospel. We are sent. We are removed from avoidance. Why do we avoid proclaiming the gospel? We've already nailed it down. We avoid it because we're afraid of failure. Once again, who wouldn't go to Walmart if they knew that they couldn't come back tonight and say, praise God, I went down there and started preaching and 100 people were saved. We'd all go. You'd have people volunteer. Let's go back. Okay, here's what you don't understand. Success. Success in having beautiful feet is not... Because you're just the means, friend. You're not going to save anybody. You're just the means. It's all you've ever been called to be is the means. Success for the means is being the means. Success is not making converts as much as we want to see people saved. We're going to get to that in just a second. I'm almost done. But that's not what success is. Success is not people smelling the aroma of Christ and going, man, that smells good. That smells like life. Success is smelling like Christ. That's success. Whether they perceive it as being the fragrance of life to life or the fragrance of death to death. It doesn't matter. We're not called in the theater of salvation to smell good or to smell bad. We're called to smell like Christ. And the rest is up to Him. And once you get that, you know that if God tells you to go down there to Walmart, you can be 100% successful in to everyone in which you proclaim. Because he'll have mercy on who he wills. And he'll have compassion on who he wills. And it's going to smell to them in whatever manner he ordains for it to smell. It's not your job. It's not your job to potpourri it up. just your job to proclaim it and to proclaim it right it has to come from the very heart of God for as Paul said we are not peddlers of the word on either end we're not trying to church it up nor are we indifferent to how you respond for of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Man, he is quoting the prophets here over the courses of centuries. So when God says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people, he's actually talking about a whole lot more than a 24-hour day. He says, man, I'll just offer and offer and offer and offer. 
And when I, hey, look, for humans, we don't get to, you know, we can't do that for that long, right? At some point in time, we're going to have to dust our feet off. It's what Scripture calls us to do and trust the Lord in what He's doing and move on. And trust that maybe it's always going to smell that way to them. Or for all we know, that the Lord is going to keep using a means that doesn't make any sense and is logically divorced from the outcome. I mean, what did Einstein say that the definition of insanity was doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result? But the reality is, is the Word of God is not bound. And what may be true for men is not true for God. And he may send the same means over and over and over and over and over. And one day it may be different. And you never know when the seed that was planted 25 years ago will spring miraculously into life when God looks down on them and their blood and says, Live. The heart of Christ. The means of Christ is divorced from the outcome. The heart of Christ is always tied to the hope of salvation. All day long. All day long. I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Man, this is not indifference. Knocking the dust off your feet is not indifference. Oh, it can be used as an excuse for it, no doubt. But it's not what Paul is talking about. What Paul is talking about is the heart of a man who puts his faith in the sovereignty of God and the elective priority of God and not in the means at hand and says, therefore, I've done what the Lord asked me and I will trust the Lord in his goodness to do what must be done in his ordained time. We're the aroma of Christ everywhere. That is success. Regardless of how it is received. And so what I will say to you today. Is exactly how we began. That we are not ashamed of the gospel. But I am eagerly obliged to it. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is the wrath of God revealed against men. It is God spending the lifeblood of his son to buy you back. And if by faith today, instead of hearing the voice of Brian Williams, you hear the call of Jesus Christ, then you come running. Because all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All day long we hold our hands out. Come. Now. And you ain't got to walk an aisle. You can be saved right where you sit. Come to Christ. Let's pray.